The Money Show. Other people's money. Before we get to Rich Mile Holland, I'm just, I'm ridiculously excited about going to Davos. Um, and it's going to be weird because there's going to be no snow. There'll be snow up on the tops of the mountains, no doubt, but there won't be any snow in the valley floors. Temperatures will be between, I think, you know, 12 and 20 degrees Celsius. Um, and it's going to be weird being in the at the World Economic Forum without snow. It's going to be fantastic, though, and really looking to see what trends we can pick up on and report back to you on from the World Economic Forum. I'll leave on Saturday, arrive Sunday, register, kick it all off on the Monday morning. Having spoken, uh, what, 30 countries, six continents, Rich Mulholland, who started life out carrying... Uh, he was a roadie, carrying musical instruments and microphones and setting up stages for, for rock stars and rock bands. Um, he has built a business in South Africa which is truly world class. It's called Missing Link, and they build pressions for people. He's done lots of other things alongside, of course, Missing Link. He's written various books, one called Legacide, in which he encourages people to, to destroy themselves internally, a bit like Mike Sharman was talking about really uh, disrupting yourself. Boredom slayer, story seller. He's really is absolutely active and a uh, very, very committed individual to the world of communication. And tonight, other people's money with Rich Mulholland, the owner at Missing Link. Do you save money by being a vegan is my first question to you this evening, Rich Mulholland, because you've been <laughs> veganizing for a while. And I wonder whether or not being a, becoming a vegan is a good economic strategy. Il, 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 illuminate me. Uh, so, no, Bruce, you don't save money by being a vegan, uh, unless you're married to my wife, who is very, very strict on what we buy. But no, it's definitely, you're not, you're not doing it to save cash, at least not at this stage. I do think it will get there eventually. Yeah, because I mean, vegan food, it's early stage development, so much of it, plant-based meals and all of that sort of thing is very expensive. But I suppose what you are not saving on the food bills, you perhaps are saving long term in terms of health and other benefits, because you are looking rosier and ruddier and healthier than perhaps you were four or five years ago. Thanks. Yeah, I feel healthier and ruddier than I than I did five years ago, for sure. And I will say that you do actually save quite a bit in terms of when you're not eating meat substitutes. You know, we, we, Jazz grows a really amazing garden and we get a lot of food from our garden. And, you know, you eat lots of vegetables and vegetables are obviously not expensive. And so so you can save money that way as well. But really, uh, the health benefits have been extraordinary, if only for the fact that when you're in those little aisles in the shops where you normally pick up all those snacks and junk foods, there's very little for you to to reach for, except for those little balls of disappointment, those little date balls. <laughs> and you look at them and like, I don't, I don't want those. <laughs> That's a terrible life decision. And so you just kind of move on. You, you don't bother snacking. Um, and yeah, and that's got to be healthy uh, as well. Talk to me about um, growing up. Where did Richmond Holland grow up? What's your background? What did mum and dad do? Was there money in the house? That sort of stuff. Yeah, so I grew up in Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, my father worked for Scottish television and my mum uh, for a big department store called Treron's. Uh, we had a really great upbringing. You know, we went on nice holidays and things like that. And uh, everything was fantastic. Uh, we moved to South Africa in 1983. I turned nine about a month after I got here. And and then we arrived here and it was, you know, first of all, when we moved over, it was a 1.6 exchange rate. So nothing like it is now. And right after we arrived here, uh, the recession hit or a few years later. And and then things definitely got a bit tighter than, than 
and, and I vaguely recall it, but I don't know how much of that is my parents kind of filling in gaps for me, you know, than, than me actually, because, you know, we were always looked after. My parents sent us to private school, uh, even though I realized later on in life what a sacrifice they made to do that. Yeah, and I mean, parents do that, um, you know, in terms of especially moving to a new country and not knowing the lay of the land will err on the side of caution and won't be financial caution. They'll be you know, erring on the side of caution to ensure that their kids can get the best that they possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I remember one incredible story uh, and it was one of my birthdays, I think maybe 12 or 13. And I'd wanted to invite friends over for a party. And my parents were like, you know, we just at the moment, we just can't afford to do that. And I said, but don't worry that everyone will bring money along. And, you know, everyone brings five rand in a card. I said, so that's all the money. Like we can we can buy this. And, uh, you know, the kids arrived. And I didn't oh, it's only later I thought about it that my parents waited until that money came in and then ran out to the shops to buy stuff. So it wasn't like my dad ran out or my mom ran out. My dad was entertaining us. It wasn't like that they, they actually had the money and I was going to pay them back. And what was crazy to me around that was in spite of all of that, that they didn't have money to throw a birthday party for me at that stage. They still sent us to private school. And I thought, wow, like this is incredible. I, I don't think I'm nearly as good a parent as they were or as they still are. It was absolutely incredible for me. It was only later I appreciated the sacrifices that my parents have made, and I, I think it's made me more frugal as well. Um, are you a frugal individual? You like fun things? You like expensive gadgets and toys and things like that? Are you really frugal? Um, less, as I, le- less as I get older. I went to a stage in my 30s. I bought like fancy cars. I was actually speaking at an event today, and I was talking about it. It was my... My kind of idiot years, you know, and I, I probably at peak idiot, I bought myself. And this is no judgment to anybody else, except for the fact that I didn't enjoy cars. I didn't like cars, but I bought myself a Porsche because, <laughs> because I thought that I had to have one. So it wasn't, there was no other reason for doing it other than fragile ego. And I remember chatting to Robbie Brosen. We were having lunch one day and he said to me, he said, uh, the, the most successful people in the world uh, are able to buy a Ferrari, but don't. And I thought that was a fantastic life lesson for me. And again, he wasn't saying that they shouldn't. He was like, it's like being able to do something and then not doing it anyway. And so right now I do splash out occasionally, but it's, I mean, I just bought myself a, an iPad for the first time in about five years. And I really had to think long and hard about if I wanted to spend that kind of money on it. We tend to spend money on experiences and uh, vacations and trips and travel and things like that. Uh, but I mean, I've not bought myself a new motorcycle in about, I don't know, four or five years now. Um, but you, you do like motorcycles, but your motorcycle is a work tool. I mean, in, in the olden days of traffic, um, you used to be able to weave in and out and you would be going to two or three events a day, in some cases on opposite ends of Joburg. I remember those days. Um, and you would be having to whiz about and beat the traffic. And that, I think, how, is how you justified you know, spending a fair amount of cash, I think, on, uh, on, on, good, quality, uh, on, good, quality motor, on good quality motorbikes. <laughs> yeah, but Jazz did draw the line when it got to nine bikes, uh, because that excuse that excuse excuse gets you to the you first kept one or what, two. Nine nine bikes in like nine in bikes a row at, the at most. once at the same time. Yeah, because I lived between Joburg and Cape Town, so I had a few in each place. But now I've got I've got two. I've got my motorcycle, and my Vespa, and and I still believe as a as a professional speaker when traveling at least around cities having you know the last thing and you must know what it's like Bruce when you when you're turning up for a keynote and there's traffic and the last thing you want to be is late and let anybody down and there's an audience waiting and just knowing that I don't have to worry about traffic is a is a huge thing so that's that's always been a big 
But, and travel and experiences. You post on social media your experiences. You're a big fan of skiing and snowboarding. Kids come along. It's a, it's a festive affair. And in some years, I mean, pre-COVID, it would happen more than once a year. Yeah, so in 2019, I was, we worked at our hotel. I was in 26 countries. I was in South Africa for seven days in a row twice that year which depends on how we sell it, right? If I, if I wanted to chat to you about it, we could definitely sell that up to sound like a perk. It is without a doubt the most depressed I've ever been. It was the absolute, you know, travel is fantastic when you're doing it for leisure with your family and with people you love. Uh, going from hotel to hotel is, yeah. is not as exciting as it sounds. Uh, there'd be times when I would land in the city and I wouldn't, you know, leave my hotel. I would just arrive there. I would get picked up to do my gig. They would drop me off afterwards and I'd, I'd go away again the next day and that was it. Yeah, and that's, I mean, it's a, it's a huge sacrifice, but it's been a sacrifice in building a career that has enabled you to go and address people and conferences and gatherings and companies and meet some of the world's more extraordinary thinkers and doers of the 21st century, though, hasn't it? Yeah, of course. And, and busyness is a privilege. You know, I don't, I don't take it lightly. I would far rather be too busy than, than, than not busy at all. But I also try not to look at it with rose-tinted glasses. However, like you said, it's given me the opportunity to uh, speak with some amazing people, to engage with some great thinkers, uh, to make some great contacts. And, and in fact, built some very, very meaningful friendships with people in cities that I just never would have expected. Like, you know, from Guatemala City to Buffalo, uh, two friends I spoke to recently, uh, just in fact, this last weekend, all, all through that. Yeah, in Buffalo, now we know where the wings come from. Uh, but you've also met some, <laughs> some big thinkers and world leaders and actually have been influenced and help, helped influence some leading thinkers as well. Well, I don't know how much I can take credit for the influence, but we certainly try and share our thinking around, you know, we have a very, very limited area of authority. We work just on communicating messages to live audiences. And in that small regard, I've been lucky enough to work with some great professionals and key leaders at big companies. Drop names. Come on. I'm trying to get you to drop names without saying drop names, Rich. Come on, drop names. I'm trying not to. I know you're trying to get me to drop names, and I'm trying my best not to because I'm not sure how many people want to know that they've been coached by a tattooed hilligan with a spiky hairstyle. But I've also been lucky enough to share stages with many amazing people from Seth Godin to Malcolm Gladwell to uh, Will I Am. You know, just some really, really great events and people and, and that's been fantastic. Our clients tend to be large corporates and, and so I, I do feel discretion is important as well when, when working with them. But, but we have worked with some really big, big uh, corporate leaders uh, that people would be familiar with around the world. Uh, the owner of Missing Link, Rich Mulholland, is our guest this evening. Other people's money. More on money and that aspect in a moment. The Money Show. Other people's money. The owner of a business called Missing Link, it builds itself as a presentation powerhouse, is Rich Mulholland. Are you good with money? You earn it. You spend it where it needs to be spent. Are you good at investing the rest? Or does it all get piled back into the business of Missing Link? So I'm getting better. I used to I used to have this arrogant belief that, uh, and this is obviously a theme that seems to be reoccurring. I, I think we have to give people a lot of uh, a lot of uh, leeway for how they act, maybe in their twenties or things like this. But I used to think that investing was a sign that. I wasn't going to succeed, that investing in, you know, I'd rather reinvest back into my own business and grow there. What I realized later is that there are a lot more capable CEOs than me and investing in their businesses uh, made a lot more sense than just investing in my own. So 
Over the last few years, I've, I've started investing more and more and, and trying to invest externally in both as a angel investor to some degree in private businesses, but also generally speaking in some of the, the you know, the bigger businesses that would be difficult to fail around the world. <laughs> I mean, you, but you're not, you know, you're not an analyst. You're not a, uh, you're not an investment banker by training. You are a guy who's very gifted at what you do, but analyzing businesses, knowing whether they're worth investing in. How do you do that? Well, so first of all, I, I'm a set it and forget it kind of investor. So I've not yet sold anything, I don't think, which is probably bad, but I, I just kind of stick with things. Uh, the first port of call when I was, I, I read a number of books uh, uh, just to try and get my head around it. And then I subscribed to The Motley Fool, which was yeah. a, Very a podcast. Website, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, and a website. And, and they have a, a picker that I, I decided, well, you know what, they're professionals. Let me just go with what they did. And I give myself a budget a month that I figured I had to uh, invest. I set myself a target for the year of what I wanted to invest. And then they came up with their five recommendations a month. And I picked two or three that were my favorites. And I wish I could say to you that they were, they were generally businesses that either I'd already, you know, I used, so I believed in as a, you know, as a, as a person, uh, or there were businesses that I knew and, you know, I followed their logical, logical uh, pathways around what I should invest in. It certainly was not something, and in fact, I'm, in this instance, I'm loath to know too much more than that. I find that the moment you start thinking of yourself as a professional in that space, you start making professional decisions. So I'm very comfortably amateur as an investor because I listen to experts, I, I make a decision, and I just stick with it and leave it. Okay. And, and and that portfolio, does it do well? Does it bring you positive returns? Do you dare open the statements? Um, how closely do you monitor it? Uh, so, uh, so, well, I realize I have a, a new phone that I got just before I went snowboarding a, a month ago. And I went to look at my stocks uh, this weekend. And I realized that I haven't installed that app on, on this phone yet. So that's how rarely I, I check it, <laughs> usually maybe once a month or so. Uh, and... I have been net good and done really, really well mostly. But to be honest, it's been more the, uh, rather than the stocks that I've done well in, I managed to do well with crypto, which I hate to say, because it was a decision I made once. It was through, it was just a long, long time ago. And, and because it was a long, long time ago, a friend made a recommendation. Uh, and through his recommendation, I managed to do quite well on that. But otherwise, it's more index funds that have performed well for me. And yeah. I quite like the, the mindset of that, that it's just a, a slow and steady growth. And they tend to outperform over the long run. It seems to me to be a bit of a, a, a tortoise and a hare strategy. And the tortoise of the index fund seems to outperform, at least for me anyway, over time. For most people, most well of, yeah, for most people, most of the time, that tends to be true, um, rather than sitting and second guessing and, and, and really trying to outsmart the market, which frankly... Very, very, very few people actually manage to succeed in doing. What about smaller Nyana skeletons? We've all got our habits. I mean, you've disclosed at one time there were nine motorbikes in two cities. Um, and you disclosed, you know, lovely expensive ski and snowboarding holidays and things. Um, do you waste money elsewhere? I mean, spend, invest money elsewhere in other pursuits? So uh, definitely the thing I spend the most money on is board games. I'm, I'm absolutely obsessed with them. And some would say that's a, a waste uh, considering how many I do. But I realize that if I, if I give myself a budget of, of whatever I happen to spend on board games in a month, which isn't terrible, 
it's actually perfectly reasonable. It'd be somebody else's golf membership or you know something like that. And uh, but that's it's it's nice because that's my that's my hobby and my passion. And even spending a lot on that doesn't actually work out to to too much in the long run. I think that everybody in the world needs to have recreational obsessions. We need. I, I actually wanted to write a book at one stage on hobbynomics. This idea of economics yeah. driven by hobbies, because no matter how much of a downturn there is, people still find money for their expensive bicycle, and they'll buy. And I think hobbies have an economic value of their own. But I think it's worthwhile. I think that we should all have something that we're more excited of. I've, in fact, we've spoken about this before on the show that. Uh, we should have something that we're obsessed with after work. And I think spending money on that, I, I find it difficult to consider it a waste. For me, that's, uh, that's why I work in the first place, is to be able to, to uh, have some discretionary throwaway money that I can, and that sounds like a terrible thing to say, but some money that I can blow on, on something that brings me a lot of fulfillment. And you often turn it into a work tool as well, so it's not all... Um, it's not all play. Sometimes, you know, you do use it for work too. Rich, we must leave it there. There's never enough time, but thank you. Uh, Rich Mulholland, he is the founder of a fabulous business called Missing Link. Uh, 